Wilson, and this is Game Changers, and with me tonight is my guest, Snuffy Walden. Oh my God, this man can rock and roll. I just, before, just before we started, I said, okay, Snuffy, you're gonna play when we start, when we start, Snuffy. And he said, what key would you like me to play it? And he said, I said, in the key of life. And he said, I played on that album. And I'm like, what? You played on everything. No, I didn't. You played on- I did play on that record, though. You, okay, you played on everything. Wait, I have to, I have to see if we're really, uh, Christina, are we really on the air? You were it, really on. Is it working? Because it's Mercury Retrograde. Hi, Zoe Moon. I love you. And uh, Zoe told me there's like, I don't know, there's there's challenges. Zoe. There's Zoe. Say hi to Zoe. Hi, Zoe. So Zoe is my astrologer. Okay. And, no, but she's like one of my best friends. We're, we're a little blurry. Let's see if that gets better. Oh, you mother. Um, Christina, I think, oh, it says video was interrupted. Oh, it says it's still going on here. Okay. Um. Yeah. Well, okay. It says live. Going. We're live and going. Yeah. Okay. We're blurry though. Um, maybe we need it a little less bright. I think we're too bright. Maybe that's why it's blurring out. I don't know. Hello. So we're, we're just doing all the technical. Yeah, doing all the technical While stuff. we're on there, you know. Would you just... like me to play? Why do you want me to do that? I can't. <laughs> Would you please? So, so there's Rick Smokey. Rick, hi. Okay, so Rick Smokey. Hi, Rick. Rick is my angel. Um, Rick Smokey is a printer in, uh, in uh, Quick Impressions oh, right. in Chicago, right? right. So Rick, Rick made right. these, and he made these because when um, Mackenzie Phillips came to read for us, do you know Mackenzie? No. Did you know her father? No. Okay. No, but he is. Yeah. So anyway, she wrote a book about, about that relationship, which you might know was a little, yeah. So we were crying when she read. And so Rick used to make us all the swag, always made us pads and, and, and uh, calendars and all kinds of stuff. So they said, well, why don't you have him make us some tissue boxes? And he's a smarty pants, because he figured out a way to do it. He figured out a way to do it. And, and he's made my bookmarks, and he's made my business cards. I don't have any of these. And, um, and uh, yeah. So, and the thing is, if you need anything snuffied, he will snuffy you up. He will snuffy anything you want. You know, I'd like a guitar. <laughs> I don't know if he can snuffy a guitar. Rick, can you snuffy a guitar? Please. <laughs> he might be able to do it. He can do everything. He can make a tissue box. He might be able to. He might be able to. He might be able to. Cardboard guitar. He might be. Look, you get. Look how much love and happiness. We're Is that all here. love and happiness? Oh, that's love and happiness. Uh, I think there was one angry face. I'm not sure. <laughs> they were going to say, hey, Vicky, shut up and let's That was my mother. That's no. like, let's snuffy talk. But I want to say hi to Fred before we get any further. Fred. Fred's a friend of yours. I don't okay. know what Fred. I saw. Hey, Fred. How are you, buddy? It's so Fred I, I, I saw him. Oh, yeah. So I yeah. saw him on the thread, Fred. And so I'm saying hey to Fred. Hey, Fred. Fred on the thread. Say hi to your mom. He's got the sweetest mom. Isn't that nice? Yeah, he is very sweet. He oh. drives all the way from Arizona to come see us play. Where? Like how? He drives from Arizona to where? To L.A. To L.A.? When I play live. Very sweet. And What's brings he? his mom out. Where in Arizona does he live? Because I went to school Tucson? in Tucson. Tucson? Am I right? I went to college in Tucson. Hey, Fred, maybe maybe I know you. Fred's a teacher, so he may know you. Careful. I was a teacher. I taught high school drama for like five minutes. Is this what we're doing? Yeah. So, <laughs> this is I, the show, right? Now you're going to hit me with something. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know, I, because I want to give some love to Nicole Venables, my hairdresser, who deserves love, and I just went on Saturday. And your hair looks beautiful. Thank you. She's, she's, Except there's feathers in it. Well, that's not her. That's not her fault. But there is also hairspray in it, and my hairspray is called "Fuck Off," and that's Nicole Venables of the Ruby Begonia Salon. And you can get her her products at either the Ruby Begonia Salon or at Friends. It really is called that. It is called "Fuck Off," and you can get it. You can get it at uh, FriendsBeautySupply.com or at the Ruby Begonia Salon, and you can get Nicole 
And there's a heart for the you. That's there really is. cute. It's very she and she is such a cute woman. She is such a cute woman. Okay, now we can talk about you. Alright, we don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and happy We're Thanksgiving. Argue about it. All right, wait. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Hi Christina behind the camera. Hi, Hi Christina. Hi Christina Guzman, hey. yes, who's is my oh, we're a little blurry today. Look at that. Oh, right. Facebook it is makes killing. Me look young. The soft focus does help. Yeah. It really it, the soft focus does help, I gotta say. But I don't like that when Facebook does that. Um, oh, see, Fred's here. Look, he said he will. He's gonna thank. He's gonna say hi to his mom. Aww. He already told us Love that. Love your mom. Um, and so Steve Howard's here, and Michael Morata. Michael Morata, one of my oldest friends, is on here. Um, we worked at Maxwell's Farm together many, wow. many years ago. Pete, Pete George, responsible for. Pete. Um, Pete's responsible. Pete's the reason we came over here in the first place. That's right. And Pete, hey, Pete. Pete makes this fabulous. He, he, he was upset. Ooh, see, I'm all tangled. But now I'm going to get crazy because I'm going to remember that I'm all tangled. Stop. But what Stop. Pete, Stop. see this Stop. necklace? Stop. He, Stop. Want, he wants you to have one. And he was upset that he didn't give me one for you. Really? But yeah, would you wear this? Talk? Yes. Okay, so Pete, you know what? I'm going to take this necklace off after the show and I'm going to give it to Snow. No. <laughs> if I take it off now, I'm going to choke myself. No, because he's going to give me another one for me. Right, Pete? He will. So, um... So who else? Okay, so Phil Isaacson. Hi, Phil. I'm saying hello to everybody. I can see jo Jonathan Coogan. No, Jonathan forever, too. Okay. Jonathan is Jackie Coogan's grandson. Remember Jackie Coogan? He was, sure. uh, yeah. So he, he's responsible for the, whatever that law is. Is it called the Coogan law? Coogan law. Well, with, with, for young kids young in this film. Yeah. His, Whatever he was to him. You know, somebody left my record label because of that law. So Wait, I just, what? We have words. What do you mean? I have a record label, Keep Your Soul Records. Okay. For six or seven years. Yeah. And there was a 13-year-old girl or 16-year-old girl that we signed. And in the end, they they left the label and quoted that law. <laughs> it, Were you being abusive it. to her? No. He would never do that. No, it's my ex-partner. I'm not going to get into that. Okay. So you used so the Coogan law was used against you. Against oh, so Jonathan, you're not around <laughs> here today. So um, okay, so Snuffy. Yes. You know, I don't know how it is even possible that until three weeks ago I had no fucking idea who you were. Really? <laughs> no clue. And, but now I was Sarah's guitar player. But but now no. Before you came, no. I got educated. Um, and by the way, this is called this show. Did you know about this, Christina? Somebody last week coined. They said that, um, no, we talked about this with Jimmy Vivino last week, that this show is edutainment. Edutainment. Edutainment because... I thought it was Game Changers. I was well, booked I, for Game Changers. <laughs> I wasn't booked for That's Edutainment. But, but Game Changers is edutainment because you learn things and you get yeah. entertained. Wow. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. So anyway, so it's, it's beyond my comprehension that I did not know who you were because... I like to think that I have a little bit of musical, but I knew I knew nothing. But what shocked me even more than all the composing that you've done was that you were a, a rock star, and in in the vein that I am of, of a huge fan, you have you have to play something. Let's, in let's say I was a rock guy. You were such. Wait, did you just see the picture? I like, did. Uh, wow. <laughs> so, like, wow. All right. So. Um, so Snuffy was in a band called Stray Dog, and so so before we get to Stray Dog, so tell me, you're a kid in Texas. Texas. You were born in Louisiana, though. Yeah. But you didn't stay. You there. read the bio. I did read the bio. So, but you didn't stay in Louisiana. No, I lived there when I was a year and a half old. Okay, so you're in Texas, mm -hmm. and what what does that look like when you're a little kid? Well, I'm a little kid. I was kind of raised a little bit up until second grade in Houston. 
And then we moved to a ranch in East Texas where my grandfather lived. And I kind of grew up there until my on first a ranch. On a ranch. Riding horses bareback and Wow. You know. So 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 there's money in your back. So you're not you weren't a poor kid. No, no, my grandfather was in the oil business, so there was money. There was money around. Wow. And uh, Wow. So you yeah. could buy all the drugs you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't get the money. Mm. After I started doing drugs I was disowned. Oh, okay. <laughs> they got me out of the picture. No, but I grew up I grew up uh, when I was five. I started playing. Had, okay, play so how did, how, did, how did that happen? My parents gave me a Hawaiian steel guitar when I was five. I don't know what a Hawaiian steel it guitar is. It sits in your lap and you play it with a metal oh, bar. Oh, oh, is it like, like a dobro? It's like a dobro, but it's flat. But it's made in, but they're made in Hawaii. So uh, it's a white steel. It's all that aloha. Hawaii. <laughs> did you know how to do that? Well, not very well. Oh, I, so that's why you, you, you're really good on the slide. This slide guitar is my, my thing. No, it's my favorite don't thing. Start, don't this start. slide guitar is my favorite. Did you bring a slide? I didn't bring a slide. Ooh, no, but I, have, I must have something you can use. I know you guys are very that, resourceful. That Ooh. fuck you, Bob. Then fuck off or whatever. <laughs> we'll get to that. I can play with that. Yeah, okay. Uh, so no, so that's I, what he said. I played, I, I played uh, guitar for a while. And then but I you played, played this kind of. Yeah, but I and never so picked up this way. But when I was five, I used to take a broom and tie a string around it and put it around my neck and play, you know, jelly. Okay, rock, so, so, was El so, so Elvis was your hero? Elvis was big. Uh, who else? Because Christina actually asked me, I think, before the show who your influences were. And I assumed like Hendrix and things. And then, or somebody asked me that this afternoon. And, and we're not of a far enough generation away. Like, so who, who were your heroes? Once I started playing guitar, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, first I started playing when I was about 13, just pre-Beatles, playing electric guitar. Yeah. And so Chet Atkins and guys like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Ventures, so, you know, that was all the stuff I heard. Right. And then the Beatles happened, and then it was the Animals and the Beatles, and and then much farther along the line after that, maybe another three or four years, mm -hmm. we got Hendrix and Cream, and mm -hmm. I was lost. Okay, so before, and, and you, play very much in that vein. So before, before okay, so you're five, you're, you're playing this, and you play a little piano. Mm -hmm. Although I, I, I seem to recall, I've seen the documentary. So Snuffy is the subject of a documentary called Up to Snuff, which has won 21 awards. It's well. been in 68 film festivals. It's gonna drop in the spring. It, um, having gotten to see an advance copy, thank you very much, Mark Maxey, who is the director, for the filmmaker, first time filmmaker, right? Yeah, first time. An amazing job. It's an incredible film. It's really, and the things that people say about you, it's like, <laughs> I, it's like, okay, I am not worthy. It's like, you are like a deity to these people. No. No, on this thing, Aaron Sorkin speaks of you like you are the messiah of music. I've worked with Aaron for a long time. And Timothy Bustill could not have said nicer things about you. Timothy, I've worked with since my first television. And Martin Sheen kind of likes you a lot. Martin's pretty cool. Yeah, and Tom Arnold, who you know, well, oh, Tom's well. a little trippy. There's a story there. Yeah, he's a little trippy, <laughs> but um, but you helped him with all of his wives, as yeah. he said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, it's a wonderful documentary, and um, I learned quite a bit about you. But for the people out there who don't know all the stuff, but but there's stuff on that we didn't that that wasn't that. I don't know about you yet. So, so you're playing guitar. What's your first band like? First band was the Showman. Okay. My brother was playing bass. Yeah. It was me on guitar. We had a drummer named Luke Stungus, 
And a friend of mine who I think's here actually, Get Tommy, out. who we, we, we call Turkey, uh, <laughs> played Hammond. There's Turkey and Snuffy. Yeah, turkey this and is stuff. a great. Oh, we have to talk about the name. All I know. Right. I know Tommy was on because I saw some post a little while ago okay. from his brother from Ronnie. Because it was Tommy Richards. Okay. And uh, and we had this little combo and we played the Tiki Lounge down in Clear Creek. At thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They served booze Ninth and you grade. were allowed to play? No, no, they didn't oh. serve booze. It oh. was a teen. Oh. It was a Quonset hut, you know, that you paid 50 cents to get in, and everybody would dance and boogaloo. We had a guy named Butch Dotson who was a neighbor of mine, and he was in the band primarily because he could drive. He was about <laughs> five years older than me. <laughs> he was about 20. Oh. You know, and he would play tambourine oh. with the band. Uh, he's and, 20 and he's playing with 13 year olds? Well, we, he. Had a rough time getting out of high school. <laughs> right, Butch? <laughs> it's a true story. My friend Butch would agree. Yeah. Uh, so we had this band, The Showman, and then my brother and I went on and did a couple of records under different names. Look at them, and, and I'll look at you. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you can kind of sneak but and look I don't at me. See but, them. But, but, but they're there. Look at Christina. So, so my brother so, and I had yeah. a few bands, and we recorded Doug. our Doug, yeah. my brother Doug, mm -hmm. and we recorded our first record when I was 14. How did that happen? My grandfather paid for the label, so wow. my grandfather had the money, so he made a label on his own name, and we recorded. Uh, what was that called? It was it was I think P S Y one two three because we were psychedelic and we did <laughs> uh, Baby Let Me Take You Home and Bald Headed Woman. We covered an animal song and a kink song. Nice. And I sang. Well, you sang for my quite singing de debut. You sang quite a bit. You sang on Stray Dog too. Yeah, sort of. No, sort of a lot. Sort of. Um, sort of great. Um, so we're gonna argue a lot tonight about <laughs> her opinion of what I've done and her opinion compared to my opinion. Yeah, but my opinion's right. Oh, so, it's your show. You can do it. So, so okay. So all right, let's get to the name because we got to get to the name. So Snuffy. I mean, come on. So well, how did that happen? I don't know. No, it just I know appeared. You, I know you know. No, I was born William Garrett Walden, and. In this, and my mom's maiden name was Garrett. And in the South, the biggest manufacturer of snuff, which is powdered tobacco, is a company called Levi Garrett and Son. So my granddad and my mom were always nicknamed Levi or Snuffy. Your and mother was called Snuffy? A woman yeah, named Snuffy? It was a joke. Yeah. It was, you know, yeah. it was Texas. Okay. A bunch of red bless us all. But, so they were nicknamed that a little bit. And yeah. then I picked it up when I was five mm -hmm. at a, at a coeducational camp that I went to. And they said, we can't call you Garrett, that's too formal, so we'll call you Snuffy. And then Snuffy, I was just Snuffy during the summer, and I was always Garrett in school. All my Clear Creek friends were meant to me as Garrett. And then music kind of took over the summers, and music took over what I do, so. So did you know, like, was, when you were really little, is the, what was the first thing you wanted to be when you grew up? Doctor. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. So what was that about? Why? I don't know, I, you know. I think it was because I wanted people to feel better. I wanted, oh. I wanted to help. Yeah. And I you think still that's do. Just, yeah. That's kind of who you are. Yeah. yeah. I didn't change much. I've grown much, have I? <laughs> <laughs> still, still that five-year-old kid oh, banging away. I think you're doing okay. okay. So, okay, so Snuffy. So the name stuck. Yeah, the name um, stuck in the music business. It stuck, and I never changed it legally, but it. So on everything, every document, on so my license, on so my passport. So what did what did your mom call you? Garrett. She called you. It was Garrett. always Garrett. And and to to 
your family, your extended family? Or they were, I was all Garrett up Garrett. until I left high school. And and now, does everybody call you Snuffy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you think of yourself, you are to yourself yeah. Snuffy? Yeah. I'm not Garrett. Garrett's a little kid in the picture mm-hmm. that I have framed. Yeah. When I have to work on my inner child. <laughs> the little picture frame of the five-year-old in there. Yeah, you have one. I have one. There's one of me. There's one of me in the corner. Um, so, okay, so, so you wanted to be a doctor, and when when did you realize that this little thing you were doing with music was maybe more than just a hobby? When, when I got out of high school, mm-hmm. I had three jobs. I was going to college. Mm-hmm. I was an FM underground disc jockey. Which he's totally got the voice for. You can totally tell mm-hmm. that's like a DJ. Hi, this is J.A. Lawrence with KRP, you know. <laughs> I, I did all that. You got that going. And I got, I, I would have, sometimes I would work in the mornings for uh-huh. the housewife show, or sometimes I would work at, you, you know, two in the morning with the FM Underground playing Mothers of Invention and mm. the Fugs. And, you know, it was a little radio station at that time called KRBE, which is a huge radio station used to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was playing in a strip joint. Playing guitar in a strip joint. Okay, so what was that about? The strip joint was a club called The Cellar, where all the waitresses wore bra and panties, and they served fake booze, so if you went in there and got a bourbon and coke, you got a coke with some bourbon flavoring in it. And the girls, if they wanted to make more money, would strip. And when you're in the band, if some girl started stripping, you weren't allowed to stop playing. If you stopped playing, you were fired and barred. So, so it was great. So you just had to improvise all the time and somebody was up stripping, so. Oh, so you couldn't stop playing between songs, you mean? Well, you couldn't stop playing and she's up there, You period. period. You, you just keep playing until she's done and gets off the stage. Wow. You don't stop and start another song, you just improvise. Okay, so, wow. And it's really where all the great musicians that came out of Houston and Fort Worth and Dallas. There was three of them. One in Fort Worth, one in Dallas, and one in Houston. And everybody played there. Really? Everybody from Billy Gibbons to Johnny Winter to, you know, uh, everybody went through there some way or the other. And there were Uh great musicians there that never got out of Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bugs Henderson was one of the most amazing guitar players. He never got out and he passed away not too long ago. There was a lot of guys who were just cellar rats. Mm-hmm. And and it was an amazing time. And I, you know, it was paid so 10, kind of 12 bucks you, a night. What are you playing there? Play blues. Can you uh, play us something. Come on, just play us something. <laughs> you, you can't, I can't sit there and like, stare at oh, your God. guitar all night, goddamn you you got to play something. <laughs> just pretend that Christina's taking her clothes off. But it was great for everybody's chops because, you know, we'd be playing, you might be playing a Doors song, you know. Yeah. Love me two times. And all of a sudden some girl gets up to make some money and you're like, okay, <laughs> how do we make this for 15 minutes long? What? And they would strip for that long? Well, as long as the dollar tells us. Remember, I was drunk. Yeah. They also served, they didn't serve real booze to the, to the patrons. Okay. But they had something called a special. 
that they gave to us, which was Everclear and grapefruit juice. Oh my gosh. And it it turned bright green (laughs) under the black lights, because there were black lights everywhere. Right. And and we would drink that, and it was just awful. Mm. But, you know, it's the only thing you could do. If you did drugs, they spired and barred you. They might break your legs. Whoa. If you got caught dealing drugs or anything, they'd take you out the back and break your legs. It was rough. And it was. Uh, it was like a Texas mafia. It was like a, t- yeah, kind of like a Texas mafia. I mean, they had a a, a million dollar. They had a sign on the front that said, "Entrance a million dollars." And if anybody racial, anybody brown or black came to the door, they'd say, "Okay, you got a million dollars, you can come in." Oh, stop. They were just oh. awful. No, oh. There were no Hispanics allowed, no blacks. Oh. No, uh, yeah, and it was it was uh, it was real seedy. This is the late 60s? Late 60s, mm-hmm. yeah. But it had been going on since the 50s. Cellars mm-hmm. went on until probably late 70s, probably. There's a documentary in the cellar out. Really? And so how'd you get the hell out of there? See, now I'm playing. Yeah, just, you can, no, no, you can noodle. You can noodle all you want. Okay. How, how'd you get out of there? I, I got out of there, you know, I had a bunch of different bands and I ended up, this is funny, a buddy of mine who just passed away was my roadie. I was so broke, we were living in the park, but I had a roadie. <laughs> and he carried my guitar in the park. And he we was were broker eating. than you were. <laughs> but we were, I would make sure we had cans of beans and stuff like that to eat. We How long there. were you living in the park? A couple of months, and then I got a job with Where'd these you show old her? guys. Wherever you could. It was not, it was not pretty. Oh. But you know, I've done the cellar, cellar, oh. That's interesting, 19? And, and is this happening because you're a drunk? No, 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 I wasn't really a drunk then. I mean, okay. you know, it's a lot of psychedelics, a lot of all that stuff. Uh, but we, I don't know how we ended up living in the park. We just did, and we ate beans, and it was great. And we, I played, and he thought I was great, and so he was going to be there for me till I till I made it. And uh, did he stay with you till you made it? He no, he didn't. But but we ended up with two uh, bikers as managers. <laughs> Really, it's truly a Satan slave and a hell's angel, moose and tank. These two huge guys, and, and I bet they're out there somewhere. Moose, tank, find me. Last thing I heard, moose was uh, wanted for murder, so he was somewhere. But wow, we needed equipment, and when we needed equipment, they would go knock over a music store. <laughs> Get us gear. Holy, you had to do some heavy events in your life. I never made amends for that. Okay, well, we'll be talking about about your next night. Well, so so, um, I haven't mentioned it. For those of you who don't know, um, Snuffy is a sober man. Um, How many years sober? 36. 36 years sober. Um, But before that, and and I'm a sober woman, so I I wouldn't bring it probably up if I wasn't. But so... So we'll talk about the debauchery as it comes up. So, so you're living in the park. You're not particularly a drunk. You're kind of doing psychedelics, smoking some pot. No, I got this. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Some doing, you know, whatever. We were trash cans. Okay. But we didn't have the money to really get out there. Okay. And I was in a band called the Grits. Okay. That used that 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 was the band I was actually in before I lived in the park. The Grits was a uh, a four piece band with a girl drummer. That's so cool. Linda Waring, who played for years with uh, Johnny Hitzinger and Blood Rock and nice. all these different people. And I first toured with her when I was 14. She you and I did a wait, tour with BJ t- Thomas. 
How were you doing that when you were 14? It, it, long story, but he, I needed love a, BJ he had a local hit called yeah. Billy and Sue, okay. and he needed a band to back him up in Louisiana, huh? and so we were supposed to learn his songs, and we did. We learned his How songs. How did he find you at 14? Some booking agent put us together in Houston. So I was just playing in just a little club band, and I was, they had lost their guitar player, so they asked me to come and play with them, and then, so the next thing you know, we're out with B.J. Thomas, and he won't rehearse with us, so we learn all his songs, and, and we got him kind of down, and he walks on stage, and goes, barefoot, two, three, four, and we just all stand there. So nobody learned barefoot. <laughs> and so we so, limped our way through oh, three or four days. Oh, and, uh, how, how old was he when you were 14? B.J., B.J.'s about five years older than me, I guess. So He's he was kind of a kid, too. Maybe he's six years older than me. Okay. He was in his maybe in his twenties. Uh -huh. But he had a local hit, and then. So Randy because Ross he had a local hit, he's too big to rehearse with you. Is that the deal? I didn't say that. <laughs> Hi, BJ. How's it going, buddy? <laughs> wow. Okay. Actually, it went full circle because in the end, fast forward to yeah. Sarah. Sarah did her first Sarah was first Nimitz. on stage. Yeah. Sarah Nimitz is a young gal I work with. Nimitz, I said it wrong. Okay. Yeah. And uh, she was on stage the very first time at four years old with BJ. And then the full turnaround was she ended up going and we went to Nashville and did Grand Ole Opry with him and she did a record with him. And did he remember? Oh yeah. oh yeah, he remembered all that. He didn't remember my band, but <laughs> but we laughed about it a lot. Okay, that's good. He remembers he had a lot of crappy bands before he got ahead. So we'll, we'll uh, Hooked on a Feeling is the first thing I remember of his. Yeah. Well, he had a song called Billy and Sue, and I couldn't play it for you. So, okay, so we'll... Uh, we'll uh, <coughs> Are we skipping around? Gonna, do you, no, want, do you want something linear? No, yeah, no, we're, we're going to get to Sarah in, in a bit, because we, we are being a little linear. So, okay, so you're 14, you're playing with BJ, then you have this band... Called The Grits. The Grits. And we played at uh, what was now Armadillo Headquarters, what was in the Vulcan Gas Company, and we played with the 13th Floor Elevators, and... And you're playing guitar, are you singing yeah, in this guitar band? Player. Yeah, guitar player. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. My brother ended up coming into the band later, and then okay. it broke up because we were just doing too much acid and stuff. And that's when I ended up in the park. Okay, so how'd you get out of the park? I got out of the park, I met these two older guys. They must have been 25 or 26. <laughs> and they played in uh, show bands, and they wanted to put a rock band together, so... They ended up dragging me out of the park, and we moved. We put this band together called the Silver Spoon in Houston, and we moved to uh, Memphis, and and just took off. And we were like this great Texas band, but these guys were, you know, they were accustomed to playing all the big horn band. They were like horn band, uh -huh. a bass player and a drummer, and we uh -huh. went out as a trio and went to Memphis and tried to get a record deal. Uh huh. Wrote one tune that Johnny Winter recorded. Called the Good Love. Let's hear a little. I'm not going to play it. Oh, come on. I'm not going to play it. Why? Because I haven't played it in okay. <coughs> years. Okay. It's a lot of years. Okay. Uh, wrote this song for Johnny, and a guy named Dennis Crash Collins was the bass player. Mm -hmm. And he went on to be a huge DJ in Houston. And uh, Phil Mathis, the drummer, I still haven't been able to find. Oh, well, maybe and he's we, out there. We worked together for a long time, and then I got real sick. Uh, and what kind to, of real sick? I got hepatitis. I went back to the cellar and got hepatitis there. And they told me then, 
I went in the hospital for about a week and a half, and they told me when I got out, they said, you know, you can never be in the music business again. Because? Because if you go back out there and drink, you'll die. Because your liver is so screwed up. Okay, so you were already drinking massive amounts? Yeah, yeah. drinking a lot. So how, how did that, because the whole addiction recovery thing is interesting to me. How, how did your addiction amp up? How did the alcoholism amp up? When did it amp up? It got worse in England. But the story is, I, I went in the hospital, I came out and got a job at a music store. And I was just miserable. I said, I'd rather die than do this. And so I moved to Colorado and stayed in bed six days a week to go out and play one gig a week with the band. Because you were so I sick? Because I was sick. And then I got better and better and better. And that band was Aphrodite. And that band is the band that Emerson, Lake, and Palmer discovered that brought us to England. Okay, so how did they discover you? Uh, we were playing at this little 3-2 bar in Denver, mm -hmm. and the whole road crew came in one night after ELP had played at the Coliseum, mm -hmm. and they just fell in love with us. And they said, we're going to come back after the tour and make you guys huge. And, and we went, right, you know, we've heard all this before, have another beer. And they did. That they is came back. And they booked every one of our gigs for the next six months as the last gig before their European tour. <laughs> and all these people came out of the woodwork, and they got us amp endorsements and PA endorsements. Okay, so what what, what was the what was Aphrodite? Who was in Aphrodite? Well, it was originally a three piece that I joined okay. as a second guitar player. So it became a four piece. And it became okay. a four piece, mm -hmm. and then the other guitar player, a young guy, great guitar player, Robbie Farmer, left, mm -hmm. and uh, and we were a trio. And that's when Emerson Lake and Palmer's folks came across us. So Aphrodite became Stray Dog, but it's the same ultimately, guys? Ultimately, okay. except for we changed the drummer. They, when we went to England mm -hmm. and finally started working with Greg Lake, he said, uh, I love you, Stuffy. Uh, the drummer doesn't kill me. And if you want to sign to the label, we'll sign you, but not with this band. So I had to go back to the, you know, the little reflight flat we were living in and say, guys, here's what the offer is. The offer is either me or none of us, you know. And the drummer was great. He said, you got to do it. What, what about the bass player? Bass player I kept. You were able to keep. And we went all around England and then all around America and finally found an English drummer. He was playing with Noel Redding from Hendrix's band uh -huh. and uh, a guy named Les Sanson. Mm -hmm. So we got Les and that's how we formed Straight Up. And so you, so Stray Dog, I, I do not know how I did not know of you guys because I have we not. We sell a lot of records. I have not stopped listening. Yeah, but you have rabid fan. I mean, the people who knew you guys are like. Wow. We had we had a cult following. We we weren't songwriters. The songs weren't great. They were pretty damn good. Well, yeah, if you get to you know. Yeah, they're pretty good. We stole a few. Uh, so tell the story of Crazy because I, I corrected somebody okay. on the thread. Yes, on the thread. Somebody on the thread said that, that what was the band who did, who? Jerry Williams Group. No, I was no, 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 after that. Who oh, was, Blood Rock. Okay, so he said Blood Rock, the guy from Blood Rock wrote it, and I corrected him and said, no, S. Garrett is no. Well, actually, Jerry never got credit on either one of those recordings. Jerry Williams, who was one of the best songwriters I ever met in Texas, he mm -hmm. wrote a ton of stuff for Clapton and, you know, uh, just a phenomenal songwriter. Mm -hmm. I was in a band mm -hmm. with Randy Cates mm -hmm. and Linda Waring, this mm -hmm. girl drummer again, Fabulous. and Jerry Williams. Mm -hmm. And Jerry was a rhythm guitar player, and I was a lead guitar player. And and what he what wrote this called? song one day that was called Jerry Winthrop. Okay. And 
I was only in them for a little while. That's when I got hepatitis. That's why I didn't. They ended up going out to the West Coast and doing a record. I ended up having to stay in Fort Worth. Really weird to put all this time together. <laughs> uh, How old are you? How old am I now? 20. Okay. 20. Mm -hmm. And I'm playing with Jerry, and uh, and he wrote this song, Crazy About Your Baby. And it. Uh, yeah, you gotta. Yeah, well, anybody who knows it. <laughs> funny thing about it is Blood Rock did it mm -hmm. and they changed the lyric from the original because we never recorded the original we just played it live uh -huh. and Randy Cates and I got credit for writing it with on the Blood Rock record and then when I did the Stray Dog record I had to rewrite the lyrics because I didn't I knew what the chorus was but I didn't know what the lyrics were so I rewrote the lyrics and Billy Gibbons uh, not Billy Gibbons but Jerry was supposed to get credit on that and mm -hmm. nobody else was credited on that record mm -hmm. but us mm -hmm. so that was a mistake but Crazy was originally written by Jerry, then and Blood Rock rewrote it, and I rewrote it. Does Jerry remember his original lyrics? Jerry's gone. Oh, okay. Jerry died about five years ago. But he knew that you had re-recorded it, and, yeah. and, and yeah. Did, was he upset that he didn't no. get the credit on it? I don't think so. Okay. He's good friends with my brother. I didn't see Jerry a lot. He was still a brilliant songwriter, but one of us, mm -hmm. and lived in Texas. One of us means that he was probably a drunk. Had, had drug and alcohol issues, and yeah. I think that's what killed him. Mm. His liver gave out. Mm -hmm. But so, he's a brilliant, brilliant songwriter, and a great singer. I'll play you some records sometime. Okay, cool. So, 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 so you go out on this tour, you become straight off. Is it always normally like this on your things? Because It is, right, Christina? Is this just kind of stream of consciousness? That's what it is. You don't have to follow us. No. Don't take good. notes. Can you guys, all right, so you guys out there, let's see who's out there. Do you guys, do you guys out there, do you know what we're talking about? Is this like, uh, Rick just joined, Rick, you just joined because we were talking about you before and Snuffy said hi to say hi to Rick. Hi, Rick. Okay, there you go. He said, so he just said, hi, Snuffy, hi, yeah. So, um. Um, oh, that was actually a long time ago. Fred's doing a lot of talking here. I don't know what he's saying. Fred talks. Um, <laughs> the Wonder Years. We're not up to the Wonder Years yet. We'll get there. I promise we'll get there. Music by... Do They're talking soundtracks. We're not up to the soundtracks yet. We're talking rock and roll now. Um, he is hot. Who is Some that? You are. Christina Tina Ferry says he is hot. Hi, he Christina. Is, he, is, <laughs> he is hot. I agree. Don't you know, go there. You're not going to get any argument from me. Fred's saying a lot of stuff here. Hi, Mitch. Mitch Weissman is the original fake Paul. Fred, condense it. <laughs> um, Mitch, a very old friend of mine, the original fake Paul in Beatlemania on Broadway and, and the film. Uh, yeah. So, so, yeah, he's watching. And John Green and Pete's watching. Hi, and, and Peg. And I'm saying hi to everybody. And uh, I, they're all talking, and I don't know what they're saying because I'm not going to read the things now. But, okay, so, so Stray Dog, you so you have to tell the Stray Dog story about what happened to you when you're, when you're out uh, in the middle of the, you, ha you have to tell the story. Okay. okay. Stray Dog, was, we were touring. We were doing a world tour. We got pulled out of the studio doing our first record because Emerson Lake and Palmer was going on a tour. They were doing the brain salad surgery tour. I, I, I definitely saw you. Definitely it's saw it's too freaky. Yeah. Uh, but we were doing this, uh, they were going around the world, and since I was signed to their label and I was signed as an artist, 
we opened for them. My trio opened for Amherst Lake and Palmer. So there's two trios, one blues-based trio and then a classical-based trio. So we were touring with them all around Europe and we came back and mixed the record and barely got it out and came to America. And we were playing in Detroit in Cobo Hall, 20,000 seater. And I had this brilliant idea a few gigs before that to put a really long cable together and go have a mic stand in the middle of the Coliseum where I would jump off the stage and run out playing with, as they were say. Were you naked the, at the time? No, don't start. I heard you used to play naked, but we'll talk about okay. that. Uh, yeah. No, but I just ran out to the middle of the, to the stage and I'm just burning away, you know, I'm, I'm tearing it up and I get almost to the microphone and the band stopped playing and the guitars are wailing and as I almost get to the microphone, a guy stands up to go to the bathroom and steps on the cable and it was one of those curly cables and there were about 10 of them all hooked together and it just snapped and went zing to the stage in, in this big pile. And all you could hear was the sound of my amp going Aah. And uh, this is in the documentary, but Tristan Bowden loves to say, people just started going, boo! <laughs> it was the most humiliating moment of my life. And I was standing there with no sound, spotlights on me, 20,000 people, and they're starting to boo. So I just kept playing. Now you can't hear anything, but I'm... <laughs> and I'm walking back to the stage, and I get to the stage, and it's about this tall, so I can't get up. And all of a sudden, my bass player is punching all my buttons because I had tape echo units yeah. where I would record a solo and then I would kick it back at the end of a shut song. Right. So I'd be playing rhythm and there'd be two guitars playing. Right. Great. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, I'm standing there about to put my guitar up and my guitar starts playing. And then people are really booing. And, and I was so humiliated. You were Billy Vanilla guitar, yeah. And I just... Walked out the exit to the side of the stage. No, you didn't. I did. I just walked, and I went backstage, and ten minutes later, I came back on. But what'd they do for ten minutes? Bass solo. Bass. In those days, you could do a ten-minute bass solo. Oh my god. So that's all they could do until I got back. Oh my god. So humiliating moments in the life of WG Stuffy. Okay, so you're you're a pretty young guy. You're playing in. In, in venues for 20, what, what is that like the first time you walk out and you're playing for, because you went from being like a bar band kind of guy in clubs to this 20,000 seat arena. What, what is yeah, that we like? We played as much as 50,000 in Europe. Okay, so. Outdoor so, football stadiums. So what, 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 the first time you do that, what is that like? Oh, it's a buzz you can't believe. It's just like a, a rush. I but, can't. But the hard thing for me, you know, and you asked about this a minute ago, where did the drinking really get bad? Mm -hmm. The drinking really got bad then because what happened was I didn't feel like I deserved to be playing in front of 50,000 people. Oh, oh. Uh, I, was, I was trying, but I had a lot of insecurity about it. So what would happen was I would drink more mm -hmm. and feel worse about myself. And as that mm -hmm. happened, mm -hmm. more and more happened, I was living in the middle, in the hole in my life. Mm -hmm. and. I was constantly trying to fill that hole. So by England time, by the time I got signed to Emerson... Were you in awareness of this as it was happening? I'm no, guessing not. No, yeah. no okay. awareness of it. This mm -hmm. is retrospective. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was living like, I mean, I was living in this beautiful home where I had road crew and all that stuff, and I'd never made a record. I would just spend an ELP's money. They were just throwing money at us. 
And so I was living was like a king. Before you made the record. Right, before I made the record. Okay. All I would do all day long is sit and smoke hash and play guitar in front of the television. You know, and probably which had a lot to do with my scoring career. <laughs> Who knows? But, well, it came in handy. Yeah, it did. So uh, that's when the drinking really got bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and so how did the drinking matter? What, what, what did that look like? So, because you, you had to go out there and you had to do your gig, and did you wait till after you were done? To... I, didn't, I didn't drink much before. I, put, I, I would do some, uh, some powder, <laughs> some dry goods, yes, and a little, you know, have a shot or two, but just to get in a space. I would never be out of control performing. Mm -hmm. I, I would, it was too important to me. Mm -hmm. But afterwards, all bets were off. So, and, afterwards, uh, who knows? Were you a, a blackout drunk? Yes. So w w you would find out the next day what you did? Well, I know what you're getting to. It. <laughs> I know, yes. So yeah. tell us about that. <laughs> tell us tell about us the blackout drinking. Tell us about the blackout drinking, Snuffy. All right. Give so, us a story. I would drink. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell any sordid stories, but okay. I, I would drink until I blacked out. And then I'd get up the next morning and people would say, do you know what you did last night? And it was the worst thing in the world because I got that three or four times a week. Ooh. And I would, you know. Were you feeling like crap every day? I mean, you have, no, you didn't feel like crap when you woke up in the morning? Mm -hmm. Really? No, we, you know, we were 21, 22. We were young kids. You could do anything. Yeah, I guess that's you could so. really, You could really bounce back. And, and I don't, you know. It was on the road where I was really bad. I mean, at home, I, you know, we'd go out to the pub, and mm -hmm. but I wasn't blackout drinker every night. Mm -hmm. But on the road, it got worse and worse. And I felt, you know, we, we were sometimes getting great responses. We were sometimes getting, you know, in Paris, they threw fruit at us. <laughs> no, why did they throw fruit at you? Because you were, the we were doing a live radio show. We oh. were an opening act. Mm -hmm. And the guy came on in French and said, don't, don't be too hard on him. We have this little band opening tonight. Oh. Stray dog. That's what he said. I didn't know his thing. Mm. And the curtains open and people start throwing fruit. Mm. That's the kiss of death. It's like telling kids that they're getting a substitute teacher. Yeah, right. It's like, it's you like, know, no. just, yeah. These people don't count. Just yeah, right. be nice to them. Yeah, be a little you. nice to them. I don't think he's every night. So we had, uh, we had mixed reviews. Uh, the band was great. The band was great. But I said we weren't songwriters. What we did is we wrote songs to hang our playing on. It was really about the instrumental. It was that, and, and, and we just kind of sang songs so that we got some place to put a solo. You, you know? had some pretty good songs. I'm, I'm pretty much loving pretty the songs. Song. I'm loving the songs, and I'm, but what I'm loving more than the songs. But they weren't pop songs. They weren't they, hit no, songs. No, they weren't they, radio songs. They were rocks. They were rock. Yeah, but they radio was dirty wasn't rock and roll. It was excellent. But, but album rock was what I was listening to then because there was album rock radio. Then why didn't you buy a record? Yeah, because I didn't even know. Because Pete Fornatel wasn't playing here. <laughs> You know, I'm listening to WNEWFM and all day long, and you know, I didn't hear Stray Dog. I don't know why I didn't hear Stray Dog. I don't know. We but, didn't get a lot of air. But what I—that's what somebody was saying—that you didn't get a lot of airplay. But the people who found you because they saw you with them and like, and I must have, but I was—I was too stoned to remember who the opening act was. But I'm, I was probably in the bathroom getting high when you guys were playing. But um, but what I loved more than the music were the clothes. Snuffy has a jacket. In that um, Chevrolet, the 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 cover that you guys do of ZZ Top Chevrolet, I I, I, I have listened to it at least a hundred times, and I actually um, I like your version better, 
and I love ZZ Top. Sorry, Billy. I'm sorry, and I, I love ZZ Top, and I love I love everything they've done, and I and I like their version of it a lot. But your version is so rocking that it's. Can you play a little of it? Like, eh, a it's not of an it. acoustic guitar it's, thing. But. No, it's not. But. song just rocks so hard <laughs> but your jacket in the video i white, want that was shit. it white or black no it was black but your whole he was, i had two outfits he was like a, a skinny little link and he looked like he was six and six foot ten and because he was all legs and he was wearing these skinny little pants and this little leather jacket with long hair and just Why? rocking it. I'm telling you, I've seen it like a hundred times. I love this video. My Harry's like, stop playing that already, please, ma. I, I keep playing. It's pretty rocking. And um, and yeah, your clothes. You wear jumpsuits and and spandex. Spandex, and, yeah, the whole work. Yeah. And then, from what I understand, you were taking it all off. Yeah. Yeah. So I you like to get naked. It. So what's that about? I don't know what that's about. <laughs> but that's you didn't about, do it on stage, I would right? get drunk. <laughs> I wouldn't do it on stage. No, I would get drunk and we would. You know, got overheated. Yeah, I don't know. It just, you know, it always happened in a hotel somewhere. Uh, sometimes I remember one time when I was doing the vocals. Yeah. To, uh, to the first Stray Dog record, I had him build me a little box out in the middle of, of Olympic Studios, and I took off all my clothes and sang the lead vocals. You know, so I don't know why. Wait, you built a box? You went inside the box? Yeah, we built a box out of uh, out of sound sound. So, so that you could be naked inside while you sing? Yeah, I mean, you know, Mick Jagger could come in. I mean, Zeppelin and Stones, all those guys were always working there. And we were in the big room. You don't want to do that. But I thought it, thought it would get to the core of the issue, I guess. And that's crazy. That's drunk. <laughs> okay, so how did, how, did, uh, how did that stop for you? Well, because you've been sober 36 years. That's a long time. It wasn't straight dog time that you got sober. Oh, wait. So what happens? At, so how does Stray Dog break up? What, what happens there? Stray Dog broke up. We were on tour uh, with Dave Mason. We were opening for Dave Mason in the United States. Hi, Alvino Bennett. Alvino! I, you know Alvino? I love Alvino. Alvino! Alvino played the living room. I love Alvino. Alvino's great. Alvino and I played together with Shaka. Oh, God. Uh, anyway, long story. Uh, we were playing with him. Mike Finnegan, if you know who Mike Finnegan is, was Mike, playing Hammond for Mike Dave Finnegan, Mason. who played with Hendrix on Electric Ladyland on Still Raining, Still Dreaming, which is, and I've, I've fawned all over him about that. Yeah. yeah. So he was playing with uh, Dave Mason, and, okay. and he and I were Southern boys. He's uh -huh. from Oklahoma, I think. And I, by the way, I love his song at the end of your documentary. Um, what a life. What a life. Oh, what a great, great song that is. Wow. Yay, Mike. Yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, we, were, we had finished a gig in Detroit, of, of all places, mm -hmm. and all my gear had broken down. This is when we were five-piece, mm -hmm. uh, because I added two pieces. Because they, what did, you, they what did you add? Was there we a added keyboard? a keyboard player and another guitar player singer, Okay. Timothy Lane. And uh, so Mike and I were upstairs doing Coke and Jack Daniels. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what we do. Yeah. And the rest of the band, we'd just come from San Antonio, so the rest of the band had mezcal and tequila. Nice. So they were drinking mezcal and tequila downstairs. Mm -hmm. So apparently, 
I don't remember it. But apparently, I went downstairs to my room where they were all drinking and proceeded to say everybody needs to leave. But the tensions have built up between my bass player and I for so long, for two years now, because he was the original founder of the band and I ended up taking over. He was the founder of Aphrodite and I took over the band. That somehow in my uh, uneloquent, is that a word? In, ineloquence? ineloquence? Lack of, lack of eloquence. Lack of eloquence <laughs> in asking them to leave, mm -hmm. he and I got in a fight. And I woke up out of a blackout in the hospital with my face out to here. Oh my. And, uh, and he was all beat up. And they sent me to. Uh, Your phone's ringing? Phone's you can't ringing. answer it now. I'm not answering okay. it now. Uh, <laughs> they sent you. They sent me, sorry. It rings in my ears, you know? <laughs> you can't hear it, but it rings in my ears. It's like dog. He has like dog ears. No, it's because he has... I'm not going to say why. Okay. okay. Let's just leave that. He's, he's... How do I turn this off? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. So, where was I? You were... Well, I was with, we were upstairs, and I went downstairs, and, and Alan and I got in a fight. And your face and we is all ended up, I ended up saying, listen, I've got to go back to L.A. and get better. So, I flew back. They flew me back to L.A. The band went on as a fourth piece. Without with Dave Mason, without oh. me, for about a week and a half. Mm -hmm. And then I called and said, listen, okay, I'm well Is this is like back. at the height of Dave Mason's career? Is this like when he's yeah, a, yeah this is like. He's doing great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Dave Mason was headlining big shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, go ball, 20,000 seaters. Yeah. And uh, I called and I said, listen, I'll be able to take the plane back tomorrow. Well, and they called me back and they said, if you come back, the whole band's quitting. Wow. Mm -hmm. Was so, that from the drinking? Yeah. So I said, well, I'd rather the band stay together than that, and I walked away. And that was the end of Straight Dog for me. And they lasted about six more weeks and broke up. Oh, wow. And because so, I was the yeah. center of that yeah, band yeah, yeah. originally. You know, I, it was built around me. So. so, and where do you go from there? Then I just started, I was a gunslinger. I just started. Journeyman? Yeah, journeyman, you know, touring with. Who first? Toured with a band called Brooklyn Dreams with Donna Summer, where I would go out and play with Donna and conduct for Brooklyn Dreams. I did everything. I toured with Eric Burden. I toured with. Uh, so oh, that must have been some partying days right there. Yeah, they were. I had a band called the Walden Olson Band that was really good from Mark Olson and from Rare Earth, and we had a great band. And, oh, wow. Um, but we just couldn't get it together, you know? Mm -hmm. Between the drugs and the alcohol, it just. You know, it was a very slow downhill slide and we couldn't, just didn't have the what for to make something work. So I was gunslinging and working with Eric and- uh, Those must have been some partying days. They were crazy. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I had my last drink on the Eric Burden tour. What happened? We were in Australia and I, I in a blackout with a girl with me that I took from this club, uh, hit and run five cars on the way to the hotel and then drove through the security gates of the hotel. This is all in the documentary, by the way, if you want to see the documentary. Uh, I've seen the documentary. Uh, but you, you guys will see the, yeah. you, you'll see the documentary. Yeah. And wrecked the room and came to with the beating on the door. And the next morning, my best friend, make a long story short, mm -hmm. Michael Ruff came to me and said, listen, I love you too much to watch you kill yourself. When we get back to LA, don't ever call me again. Ow. And I looked up to this guy like he was like my big brother. He was ten years younger than me, but he was musically so free and oh, such wow. a genius that I just really looked up to him like mm -hmm. a big brother. Mm -hmm. So it made an impact. Not enough to stop drinking. I stayed after the tour was over. Two weeks later, mm -hmm. I stayed for a few weeks and produced a record for some coke dealers. 
Nice. Nice. And told them I didn't drink either. Uh, you know, this whole thing started the Eric Burden tour. Mm -hmm. I was in and out of a program, oh. but not. You were going. You were going to meetings. I was going to meetings. Mm -hmm. In and out of a program. And so but you quit, you wouldn't drink for a day or two or something? I wouldn't drink for sometimes three or four weeks, but oh. I, but I, you know, mm. I do blow and, and drink NyQuil. Okay. Oh. Because nice. it's only 25% alcohol. Oh, nice. You're getting into the really sordid stuff here. You, this is all Ni stuff I don't talk about. Much. Drinking NyQuil. Drinking NyQuil. Yes, that's, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I stayed and I ended up, couldn't wait to get away from the Coke dealers and get in the airport and get a drink sat down in the airport and I ordered a Stoli screwdriver, 100 proof Stoli screwdriver. And when it came, I ordered a second one and, went and knocked the first one back and knocked the second one back and ordered the third one. And halfway through the second one, I looked in the mirror and, and I just said, you know, you're a mess. You really are an alcoholic. So I just figured I was gonna finish drinking and go back to LA and kind of drift away and drink. The last drink I ever had. How, how, how did that happen? Like, like you got on the plane, you didn't order a drink on the plane, clearly. Didn't order a drink on the plane. I was just going to get sober enough because the only people I was hanging out with were program people. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was in my second divorce and, you know, it was, it was not good. Yeah. You know, it was not a good time. Mm -hmm. and I came home to my house. It had been cleared out. All that was left in my house was a one mattress, a black and white TV, and a big fish tank with dead fish in it. Oh, God, that is so sad. <laughs> and that's what I came back to. And, and I didn't have a drink, and then I did my last drugs on New Year's Eve. Peg just wrote, this is a meeting. <laughs> this is, it is, it's like a share. I'm sorry. It's, no, 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 it's, that's, a, that's a good thing. I think we like meetings, don't we, Peg? I like meetings. I like it's, meetings. It's the best time. Yeah, yeah this is great. And so, I, I came home and after a couple of weeks I got a call from Eric to go back out on the road mm -hmm. and I had a moment of clarity and realized that I was going to have to choose music or life. Mm -hmm. Because if you would have gone back out with Eric, you would have been drinking. Yeah. 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 No way around it. Yeah. I tried it for a year. I've been in and out. Oh, when you, that year with him, year, you were. Going in and out and on the road and every time I went out on the road, everybody would tell me, if you go out, you're going to drink. And, Generally, there was one guy who would say, you know, if you don't want to drink, you don't have to. And i go, that's my man. He understands me. <laughs> and then I'd go out and I'd be loaded by the time I got off the airplane. So yeah, it wasn't very successful. So I had to make a choice. So you didn't go back out with Eric. So, so what, I put what, my guitars in storage, got a straight job. What, what kind of job? I sold screwdrivers to farmers over the phone. The you phone did set. not. So you went from playing 50,000-seat arenas to selling screwdrivers to oh farmers. Trust me, that wasn't a fun year. That wasn't a fun year. That's, that's very humbling. I was just going to say, that is really but humbling. The truth is, I was willing to give it up, and I got it back times 100. So you sure did. Yeah. In the giving it away so awesome. and, and, and surrendering it, I got it back. Okay, so, so while you're making those phone calls, you're going to meetings. Oh, yeah. You go to meetings. You have, you have a sponsor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you're doing the whole deal. Same sponsor for 36 years. I love that. Okay, so he's in the documentary. Mm -hmm. So you, uh, hi there. I won't say your name, even though it's Bill. the name of the same guy who did the thing, whole thing. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so you're not playing, are you playing at home? Are you noodling on your no, guitar? No, not actually. I, I kind of thought guitar was over. Wow. And then I got a call to sit to sit in for somebody and fill in 
and I got really nervous and I got a guitar out and I practiced for a couple of weeks and it was in this little tiny nightclub down at the Marina Del Rey called the Admiral's Dinghy. Mm -hmm. And I went down there and I was petrified because I hadn't performed sober. And I was oh. sure that when, when you get sober, everything changes. Oh God, everything yeah. changes. And you go, who am I? What am I? And I didn't know if when I picked up the guitar to play, if there was going to be anything there. Wow, wow. And it was, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And I... What'd you discover? I discovered that uh, the music comes from somewhere else anyway. This is and making me cry now. No. No, it the is. music comes from somewhere else, and if I allow myself to be a vessel of it, it will be there. And did you know that right away? No. No, I was just scared to death right away. Mm -hmm. But something happened in that two, three sets I played where I knew, no, I can feel, I can, uh, this is, it's still there. Mm -hmm. The place I go, mm -hmm. because I don't, if I'm thinking, I'm not playing. Right, right. If I'm thinking I'm in my head and this is some scales or some bullshit. Mm -hmm. But if I'm out of my body, mm -hmm. that's when the real music comes. Mm -hmm. And that's been true for me my whole life. Mm -hmm. And it's been a, you know, for me, I grew, grew up in a real, real screwed up home. Mm -hmm. And it was my sanctuary. Music was always my sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And it continued to be. Mm -hmm. And once I got sober, you know, I found it, it was different. But I could get to that place. I could get to that place where music was happening. This is an interesting conversation because there are probably people out there that might be considering getting themselves sober or not. And the conversation that I have always had with people in the arts is, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be funny anymore. I'm not going to be able to write anymore. I'm not going to be able to play anymore. I won't be able to sing anymore. Um, I was a comic for, and I was afraid that I, I, I wasn't funny when I was a comic. so. I only stood to improve, but, but I, yeah, I only stood to improve, but the thing was that once I, I, I got straight and sober, I, uh, I wrote a book. I hadn't done anything like that when I, when I was getting high, I was talking about it. a lot of yes. books. There were a lot of books, I was talking a lot of things, a lot of things, but what I've done creatively sober, I never, I didn't, see you accomplished a lot when you were been drunk. You were doing big things. I was not. But well, I was on the edge of big things. Well, you were in the middle of big things. Okay. But but you've done. That's you've, a but, but you've yeah. gone on to do much greater things. So uh, in sobriety, that I've been blessed. I got a whole new life. Okay, so let's talk about how that life started to get pieced together. Well, I, I can tell you a couple of things, and, and 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 this I don't ever talk about. But I really feel like God took a damaged soul out of me mm -hmm. and put in a fresh one. I have never I, heard anybody say that. I started writing differently. Mm -hmm. My handwriting became different. Is that so? Yeah, and that's the only thing I can, it's the only way I've ever been able to explain. Your handwriting? It's like this, my handwriting changed. So many things about me changed. And I How long sober were you when, you when that started to happen for you? The first year. Wow. Wow. The first year. I, I really knew there was something different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the be that's the best way I can explain it. So what got you off the phone selling screwdrivers and back uh, that playing? That little gig. That little gig playing down in Marina Del Rey. Okay. And then I started, you know, sitting in for, there was a, 
a gal named Melissa Marsha who played in the... A gal. There was two gals. Two gals. Two gals. Yeah. That played Melissa and Marsha. Okay. And I became on as a side man for them mm -hmm. and was making $30 a night at a place called Burbank. I can't remember the name of it. Little club. And mm -hmm. then I started working with Michael Ruff mm -hmm. again and we, he and I became friends again. How, 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 did you, how did you mend that? Michael is the one that told me <coughs> to call me, and so how, how did that how did that run? Michael knew that when I got sober and quit playing, mm -hmm. he, he, after three or four months he knew and he, he reached out to me. Nice. And then, so as I started playing again, we started playing together again, mm -hmm. and I ended up in a band called Michael Ruff and Friends that was maybe one of the finest musical groups I was ever in. Wow. And we used to play at a place called At My Place here in uh, Santa Monica, 11th Wilshire. Wow. But that was uh, two, three, four years sober. Okay. I was starting to tour. I, I went out with Laura Brandigan. I was her music director. I went out with Shaka Khan. Okay, so ha so Shaka Khan, you you were there at the beginning. I mean, when I feel for you, you were there. We broke that feel for you record. Okay, so so that was a pretty hot time in yeah. the music world. Shaka kind of took them by a storm, and I've seen that Saturday Night Live footage with yeah. the red tie and the red <laughs> and the red shoes, and you. Rocking, You've been doing but, a lot of no, research. No, but, but you, you were rocking those uh, those pleated pants. Those and, pants yeah, yeah, those, yeah. Woo, that was that 80s look yeah, thing yeah. going on. Okay, all right. Uh, so, um, so, what was that like playing in that band? It was unbelievable. It was literally, they would some play sometimes, and they would get off into such amazing things. Like we'd do a song called Night in Tunisia. Mm -hmm. And they would just start playing this. It was Jimmy Haslip on bass and Vinnie Cayuta on drums and Michael on keyboards, Tony Patler on synth bass. And they had three great backup singers, one of who's Lisa Fisher, who sings with the Stones mm -hmm. all the time. And Hi, Bernard Fowler. My son Bernard <laughs> plays with really? sings with the Stones for 30 years, yeah. Well, it was just an amazing band. Mm -hmm. And another guitar player named Jeff Johnson. And there would be times I'd just stop playing and just listen because oh. The music was so phenomenal. And mm. these guys were all great jazz players. And mm. I wasn't. I wasn't. I never learned. I never studied. I never went to school. These guys were the real deal. According to Jimmy Vivino last week, by the way, he says that all music, including jazz, all American music, comes from African blues. I believe. West African blues. Even jazz. I believe. Mm -hmm. So you, you were playing the root music. Yeah. Yeah. And then when they got sophisticated, I would stop. <laughs> So, no, I felt honored to be in that band. Mm -hmm. Shaka gave me a lot of freedom, mm -hmm. and she was great with me. And she never, you know, gave me notes. She never told me what to play. She just nice. said, "Go for it." You know? But before that, there was a little guy named Stevie Wonder that you were playing for. How, how, did, how did that happen? That's a bizarre oh. story. Actually, I was, I was still that was in the drinking days. Oh. Yeah, that was about 74, 75, 76, Oh wow! Maybe, okay. When oh. that record came out, Sauce mm -hmm. and Kilo. Oh. Stevie. Stevie's engineer was my best friend, my best buddy, and we'd hang out and drink and party and, and all that stuff. A fellow named Gary Lossball, Gary O, as he's known. And he was Stevie's engineer, so I would go down to the studio all the time when Stevie was making this record. And he didn't even know. <laughs> he, Sorry, Stevie. He knew. He, <laughs> and, he, and he called a few times, and mm -hmm. you know, but he would call at 2 in the morning and say, let's do it, you know, because Stevie had no idea whether it was day or night or not. Right. And he would call at like 2 in the morning mm -hmm. and say, you know, come down and put a guitar part on it. You know, everybody else is going, ah, tomorrow, man. And I'd go, sure. <laughs> so I ended up playing on a few tracks. And the one track that made it was uh, a song called All Day Sucker. And mm -hmm. the beginning of it, he says, play funky as you can, Snuffy. On the beginning of the record. Play as funky as you can, Snuffy. And then they gave me a platinum record. And 
TV tried, CB almost tried to teach me how to sing. He, he took a crack at it, but he realized that he, he was good, but he wasn't that good. I don't know, I kind of like He lived, you got to understand, I lived on the, on the first level apartment. Gary lived in the third level apartment, and Stevie moved in on the second floor. Oh, wow. So we were all three living in the same apartment building. Wow. Stevie was there with, I don't know who he was living with. Maybe we'll get into that. But that yeah, the apartment building was very close to the studio. That made it easy for two in the morning. Yeah, and I would hear him sing all the time. Oh. It, it would bounce out, come out of his window and bounce off the building. Then oh. Simpson come in my bedroom. Oh. And so I got to hear all those songs before they ever got released. And it was, it was Golden Lady is in my top five songs of all time. That and it's not a song he's. It's not a particularly famous song of theirs, no. but it's. When I heard Going Back to Saturn, I <sighs> flipped out the first night I heard that. But it was an amazing record. And, but you never went out, went out on tour with him. Nope. You just did studio work with him. I see him every now and then. If you can get through all the guards mm. and get Stevie Snuffy, oh, amen, you know, he's totally cool. But you got to get through a lot of guys to get there. So I don't. I don't Although know. somebody was telling me a I story seen recently. Stuff, you know. Really? Yeah, I think he was there actually last year, and I, yeah, I had just yeah. missed him. But somebody was saying that they were waiting uh, at the valet for the, their car, and Stevie was there waiting for his car. Obviously, somebody else was going to. But and and he just started chatting with him, like. He's, just he's just chatting with him. Yeah, he's a good yeah. guy. Now, very drunk one night, I remember three in the morning mm -hmm. getting in the car mm -hmm. with Stevie driving. Stop this right <laughs> now! <laughs> what? He really did. He, he drove That's a Saturday car. Night Live sketch. It actually is a Saturday Night Live sketch. That's he actually did it. And everybody's going, okay, right, right. No, 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 that's too far. And they were kind of guiding him. Holy <laughs> yeah, that's kind of crazy. But it was there was nothing going on. It was, wow. it was pitch black. Was he drunk? No, no, not. I don't know. Stevie drank. Yeah, I, 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 you I, know, I, I was so busy drinking. Yeah, I wasn't worried about anybody else. <laughs> All right, so so what happens after Shaka? What, what's happening? How, how do you? With Shaka, I, I toured with Shaka and with Michael and all these great musicians, mm -hmm. and we come off the road and we do Michael Ruff and Friends at, mm -hmm. at my place, mm -hmm. and on. Uh, New Year's Eve, 1986, an agent saw, saw me playing and approached me and said, listen, are you interested in doing guitar scores? Ry Cooter's priced himself out of the business. There's, uh, there's nobody really doing guitar scores. You're a great guitar player. Does that interest you? And being an alcoholic, five years sober, envisioning playing Holiday Inn at age 60, playing Proud Mary, you know, I said, sure, you know, I'll do anything. Had you done anything like that? Never. Nothing. I didn't have a. We didn't even know what the job was. Knew nothing about the job. No. But, but so I, are you are you a person? Excuse me. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, this no, is, we're just chatting away too well, much. I feel like we no. need to be more involved. Well, I mean, hi everybody. So, so let's see who you want to say hello to. Well, it's still Fred and Peg. I, no, there's Fred. a lot of Fred, there's a lot of Fred and Peg going Fred's on. Fred and hi Peg. Uh, I, I don't know. There's yeah. Look at this. Look at it's all Fred. It's all Fred. Fred, Fred you got to consolidate, buddy. Um, so Ray Shore. Okay, so Jess. Jesse uh, Dean. Jesse Dean. So so. Wait, what was I just starting to ask you? Um, you starting to ask me how I got into scoring. No, but it was, uh, no, I was, I was, oh, I was going to say, it appears to me that you're somebody that says yes. Yeah. Okay? Because, I try. <laughs> because part of the purpose of this broadcast is 
how did you manage to merge creativity and commerce? How did you manage to live your dreams? And the recurring thing that I'm hearing throughout your career is that whether you could or not, or knew you could or not, you were always saying yes. Well, that's the only answer. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done it over and over and over again because you got to take a chance. I mean, somebody, they're God shot. Somebody doesn't just walk up to you and say, are you interested in scoring television? I mean, that... It's meant to be. At four years sober, four and a half, I was almost five years sober, my birthday's January 11th, so mm-hmm. it was 11 days before my... When he says his birthday's January 11th, he's he's not a Capricorn, that's the sober birthday. My sober birthday is January 11th. Mm-hmm. That's well, wait, I thought you said that you quit on Christmas. I did, I quit drinking, but then I did oh, drugs on New Year's Eve, I ah. did a session where I, the more coke I did, the worse I played, and then mm-hmm. about... Within about a week and a half, I'd gone through whatever drugs I had remaining, and that's when I got the call, January 11th, when I got the call from Eric. And I had to get off the phone and go, I gotta make a choice. So that's the date I picked. I, I got you. And that was the first day that came in, January 11th, 1981. That's the first meeting that I ever made. I see. So. Okay, so now, so the guy asks you if you can score. How do you figure out how to do that? What, what do you do? How do you prepare? to audition for that gig. Well, what do you do? I, I, I couldn't, all I could do was talk because I didn't have any music. I, so, I didn't have any way to tapes, it tapes or anything. All I had were guitar solos I'd done on other records. So I just would go and meet them and talk to them. And a lot of times people would meet me because of my name. And I got close on a couple of things, just sending them guitar solos and stuff. But but, and, but you weren't trying to write anything at home? Well, or? No, I didn't have any film. What would I know to write? And then I went up they called me and they said, there's this TV show that's mm-hmm. kind of talked to everybody in town. They want something really different. Would you go meet with them? And I said, yeah. And they only met with me because they wanted to see what a snuffy looked like. <laughs> and I met with a guy named Scott Wyman. Yeah. And we talked and I talked him out of some film. And he told me what he was kind of what he was looking for. What do you mean you talked him out of some film? I talked him out of some film for me to actually write music to. Can you... Can you, uh, we're going to get to it and you ha- you have to play a, a few bars of that film, oh, please. Well. You have to play a little of what started your career and which what is something that is iconic. The first thing I wrote for them that really threw them, because I, I wrote about four or five pieces of music mm-hmm. and I didn't have any way to record it. So I called all my friends and said, will you help me record these cues and put them into film and then if I get the show, I'll split it with you. Okay. Everybody turned me down except one guy. Stuart Levin said, come over next Thursday. And so Stuart Levin and I did the first year of this show together. And then... So you brought him in. Yeah, I brought so him it in. Was really, so he said yes, and look how well that worked out. Yeah, that out worked out for him. Yeah. yeah. So I did some kind of quirky stuff because I didn't play acoustic guitar, and they kind of wanted acoustic guitar. Oh, right, so you were just electric, electric guitar, guitar player. player. So I borrowed an acoustic guitar and started playing stuff like... <laughs> It's all hammer on. And that's where. Okay, that thing that you do, you do that on a lot of things. It makes me crazy. <laughs> that's my favorite thing that you do. You you play, you know how to move that instrument to make sounds. That uh, is, uh, yeah, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty good. It sounds like you're getting biased here. It's pretty good. Uh, so, uh, yeah. 
well, the weird thing about it was, is uh, Eddie Van Halen, so you know, you, there's no history of this, but Eddie Van Halen and that band, Van Halen, used to cover Straight Out songs. So I kind of... What, kind of what, stole, which ones? They, they did, uh, David Lee Roth recorded uh, Tramp, the, first, love, the opening I, record. I love and, how, and they used to play all the stuff in the first what, what was the beginning of Tramp? What's, what do you say at the beginning of that? Oh, fasten your seatbelt. Oh, yeah. Fasten your seatbelt. Oh, it's so rock and roll. Anyway, so, you know, I was doing hammer on kind of things, and I, I just applied that to the acoustic guitar. So how did you write, how did you write the theme? You... Well, this particular piece was called Begging for Sex. Okay, now explain why that, why that There was is. a scene, this is a show called 30-something, and it's the very first thing I ever wrote on. And, and yeah, it was about a couple who had just had a baby, mm -hmm. and you know, her husband was always kind of going, hey, hey, and she was always going, leave me alone. So whenever they would start that, I would go. <laughs> and I called it begging for sex. I love so it. So the producers loved that. Yeah. And they, they were about to hire somebody else, and they heard the music I'd written, and we put it back into film. And they didn't call for two weeks. I thought, oh, they hated it. They hated it. Turned out they just didn't listen to it. They went, and they were about to hire somebody else. And they popped the audio cassette in. And they liked it. And then they popped the video cassette in. And they really liked it. And they called us in. So Stuart and I went in and lied to them and told them we, could, we knew how to score TV. We didn't. So how did the theme happen? The theme happened... Uh, at that time, everybody was trying to write a Carla Bonoff. Do you remember? Oh, that? I do. I, I saw Carla Bonoff was writing a theme, uh -huh. and uh, uh, all these songwriters were mm -hmm. trying to write the theme to Thirty Something because the pilot was an underground hit. Before we went on the air, everybody knew. Oh, really? Uh huh. So Thirty Something really came from the Begging for Sex stuff, which was, and yeah. and the theme is. Stuart and I wrote the main title together. It was like a... Anyway, the main title turned out to be so unique and so different for television. And the show was so unique and so different that that year it won the Emmy for Best Drama. And we were nominated for the, for the main title. One of 13 Emmy nominations. We didn't win. They didn't give one that year. They they didn't give an Emmy for main titles that year because they said yeah. uh, there was nothing there that deserved an Emmy. Wait, what? Yeah. And and the weird thing they did. That is so bizarre. The people at the Academy are going to shoot me for this. They just passed over our our category and we're sitting there waiting for our category. And, what? And they just passed over it and never said a word to us that they decided not to give one. 
Ooh. They never read our names. Ooh. They never announced our category. Ooh, and that's your first. That was my first. Oh, that's a burn. That's not nice. But you showed them. You showed them. You showed them. Yeah, you did. So, so okay. So, so how long do you do thirty something? I did thirty something for five years. After the first year. So wait, doing how, my, how do you learn? So how do you learn how to score? Well, how do you know? Because I mean, you're genius. I guess it's. I guess that's God. I don't know what else that could be because he didn't know what you were doing. But did you study? Did you learn? What did you learn? What did I just played the film and played music until something started to strike emotionally, until mm. something started to resonate emotionally. And then I would sit down and work out, okay, well, this is a good idea, but where do I go from there? And then how would you know, like, when to bring the music in and when to not bring well, the music? How do you know that stuff? Ed and Marshall, Ed's away from Marshall Hershowitz for the... Uh, Five years brutalized me because they were writers. They wrote scripts. That was what they did. Right. And they beat me into submission to learn the arc of a scene and the arc of an episode. How do you, arc how, of do you a story. how do you learn that? Well, for them, mm -hmm. it was like you don't. You've got to find out number one what the climactic moment, what the point of the scene is. Right. And you never step on it, and you don't leave people by the nose. And so what we did. They taught me how to comment on the story, more like a narrator commenting on what had just happened, rather than play this blah, big blah, blah. drum, right. rather than mm -hmm. being on the nose and, and pushing the emotion over the top, comment on it. So really, I had to look at it like being another character. And they taught me how to do that, and they taught me brilliantly. Wow. And, and it was... You know, to be taught by guys who were that great mm -hmm. and get your, you know, that's like master class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they taught me so much. And, and yet I only knew how, I knew, knew how to do. All I knew how to do was look at film and play until something happened. So what, what happened after 30-something? Where did you go from there? I was doing 30-something, and I got a call from a guy named Neil Marlins, mm -hmm. and he said, we're doing this little show. It's going to air after the Super Bowl. This that's a pretty. Year. That's pretty good placement, I said, right that's there. A good, but I didn't know that it was a good placement. I didn't just knew it was going to be a show. Okay. And I went over and met with them and saw them, and it was a show called The Wonder Years. <laughs> and they asked me to do that because they liked the music for thirty something. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't do a main title for that. It was a Beatles song that Joe Cocker sang. Mm -hmm. A little help from my friends, mm -hmm. but so we did six episodes of The Wonder Years that year. 30-something won the drama for Best Emmy. Wonder Years won the drama for Best Comedy, and I was doing both of them. Wow. I was doing them with Stuart Levin. Mm -hmm. And then Stuart and I split up over that summer. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the same motivation to work. Okay. And nor the same style. Okay. I was obsessive, compulsive, 14, 16-hour-a-day guy. A good addict. A good drunk. <laughs> it comes in handy for things. And, and he wanted to work eight hours a day. Mm. And I, I needed to work that hard because I knew I was going to have to work twice as long to be half as good. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it felt to me. And so we split up after that first year. Mm -hmm. We did three shows that year. We also did the Jerry Van Dyke show. Oh, wow. He came and did. And so Stuart took uh, the Jerry Van Dyke show. I took Wonder Years. And we split 30-something for the next five years. Oh, wow. They would alternate. You oh. do one episode, I do one episode. Did they sound different? 
Yeah, well, they did. He had all the masters. Stuart had the studio mm -hmm. and had all the masters' tapes. Mm -hmm. So he had a guy come in and learn how I played, oh. who did a sound alike of me. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem was, and Marshall and Ed will, will tell you that, the problem was that they, at that first year, they learned to do a sound alike of what we were doing that first year. But you kept growing. I kept growing. That's right. And, and so they stayed there, mm. and they were able to keep it in the same vein, mm -hmm. but when it came time to do mm -hmm. other shows, I've done all of Ed Marshall's shows on television, mm -hmm. so So what happened after Wonder Years? You know, all of a sudden I woke up and I, I had a couple of hit shows, and, mm -hmm. and I found out they were not only going to put my name up in lights, but they are going to pay me royalties, and uh, that was all new to me, and, mm -hmm. and I said, this is only going to last a couple of years, but let's work it hard, you know, because mm -hmm. they're going to figure out I don't know what I'm doing. And that was that is such an addict mentality to believe that about have all that success and and not believe in yourself still. Wow. Yeah, so I just dove in mm -hmm. and did as much as I could to learn. I just had to learn about it, and uh, I'd had that one year with Stuart, and mm -hmm. Stuart was at least familiar with studio techniques and mm -hmm. had done some cop show once, and so I learned enough from that to build a little tiny studio and uh, and then try you know get all the loans I could and buy a house and build a studio there. And, mm -hmm. and I just kept waiting for the doors to fall off and the wheels to fall off and it never did. Although, I ended up at one point, I got fired from the Wonder Years. How come? Uh, my dear friend Bob Brush, who was running the show then, okay. and I went toe to toe on the last episode of the second year, I think it was, the second season. And he was a composer. Yeah. And he and I had a, disagreement. Over music? Over, over the music? music? Over music and what I would read written. And so I said, well then you show me what you want, because I knew he was a composer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got frustrated and couldn't, and we ended up toe-to-toe, -to -toe. and next year I called, next season I called, and I said, when do we spot? I said, sorry, we moved on to somebody else. Ooh. And they hired a Sinclair player mm -hmm. to play acoustic guitar on a keyboard. Mm. And it lasted five episodes. And they came back to me, and my agent uh, doubled the fee. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and bought my house. So. All right. So, so that, that, that worked out, out pretty well. So then I finished twenty years off the rest of the mm -hmm. seven years, whatever you did. And then, and then what came after that? I don't know. It's more work. More work. When? Okay. So tell. Compelling. Well, and so you yeah. did comedy. You don't want me to. You don't you, want me to give you the. But you, you did like Ellen, and you did. Roseanne and you did a lot of half hour comedy. And and half hour comedies, Drew uh, Carey. And is that and how different is that for you? How different is that for you, scoring that as opposed to scoring an hour drama? It was completely different. And and so how did you learn the art of that? Trial and error. Mm -hmm. It's all trial and error. But how would you get the gig? How'd you get the first gig doing? How did I get any of these gigs? <laughs> you just said yes, I can do it. Yeah, I just showed up and did the footwork. That's really all it is. And Show up and do the footwork. Yeah. That's really all it is. It really is. So, okay, so the West Wing was a completely different it's experience. It's really bizarre talking program. <laughs> it's well, good. Well, but it's, it, but program... No, 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 it's all I mean, I believe that if the 12 steps and the 12 traditions were planted every, plastered everywhere across the world, it would be a much better world than we'd all, you know, so if we all, if everybody in the world were a program, man, think... If we had program in the White House, things would be a lot different. Uh, 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 we'll uh, so we're not going to go to 
doing guitar on I'm all. Doing guitar on all the scores. On all I, the scores. I got a show called I'll Fly Away. Okay. Which was a story about uh, race relations in the South mm -hmm. in the 50s. I, I don't remember that show. Who was in that show? Did Sam Morrison. Oh. Uh, was his main story. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a bit of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird mm -hmm. in a way. It was the guys uh, who did Northern Exposure. Okay. Did this show. Rob Morrow. Hi, Rob. Yeah. And they, uh, I knew if I did another show on guitar, mm -hmm. that I would just be. The guitar guy. I'd be the guy that. So. Not that that's piano. such a horrible no, thing to be. It's not bad, but I wanted some range, mm -hmm. so I bought a piano and learned how to play, and I scored wait that minute, show wait on minute. piano. You bought a piano and learned how to play. I mean, I knew a little bit. Realized that I'd grown you, up you, right, you, playing you, a little bit. Okay. You know, but never school. Did you teach yourself? Yeah. Ah. How long did that take? As much time as I had. What was that? A month, a month and a half. Wait, you taught yourself to play piano in a month? But <laughs> writing is different than performing. I would never go out and attempt to perform a show on keyboards. Okay. It's totally different writing. Writing, you're in a, a protected arena and you've only got to get to that musical thing that you like. Plus, we were blessed. I was blessed. I, none of my career would have happened if it weren't for computers, MIDI, all that stuff. All that happened a year before I got At just the right time. It just happened. The Mac SE wasn't even around. Mac Pluses, right, and, right, and performer, not even digital performer. So, I got to use my ability, coupled with the computers, coupled with all the technology that was just happening at that time. To were, you, were you good with technology? Were you, were you no, not particularly good? Did but you I, had people who did that stuff for you? No, nothing. No. But I, I had an engineer in me. Mm -hmm. But I learned enough because you're forced to. Right. Are we boring these people? I don't think is no, anybody bored out there? I'm not bored. No, I, yeah, I'm it, totally it, into this. Myself. Okay, so if you're bored out there, um, if you're bored, um, tell me and you know. To and, tell us now if you're bored. Do people, if make, make, just said it's a great show. Make make mad faces if you're bored right great now, chat. And, and then I'll know that you're. That, no, she Tina just said no. Look, see, they're sending up likes to tell you that it's a great show. All so, right. All right. I don't know. So no, they're it's not boring, and if if they're bored, they can go away. Too much about me. It's all okay. about you. It's all about you. So, okay, so. Uh, so, I learned how to play piano and did uh, I'll Fly Away predominantly on piano. The main theme was I mean, I, I play it, but I can't play it on guitar, so it's a piano game. Okay. So, the main theme was piano. And, oh, see, I, I was wrong. I thought it was West Wing was the first time that you. That was the first time you first scored time orchestra. orchestra. Okay, so how does that happen? That happened because I was working with Aaron Sorkin on Sports Night. Which, by the way, I, I in the documentary they they, I was wondering why they the first time I watched the documentary I was wondering why they showed so much of Sports Night, it was so long a clip. Yeah. And then I realized why they did it is because now I'm, the second time I'm listening to the music and I'm like, oh my god, oh, I score. I had no idea. Like I don't pay attention to that. Yeah, that's, that's just that's us. My you're not job. Right. You're not supposed the job to. Job is you're not supposed to. You're supposed to be into the story. I'm supposed right. to. Right. So the first time I'm I'm listening to the whole story and I'm going, this is really a good scene. It's nice. It's nice that it I'm seeing Aaron's work. Why is it in Snuffy's documentary? And the, so the second time I'm going, oh my god, listen to the score. Listen what's happening here. Listen how he's underplaying all of this conversation. Um, how do you learn to do that? How do you learn to do Aaron Sorkin? <clears throat> Oh my God! Because yeah, that's a completely different animal. Well, it's a yeah. It's it's like 
6,000 words a minute, and it's constant movement and constant... Boom, boom, yeah, boom, Yeah, yeah, it's, it's always a moving target. And, and what Aaron wanted, you know, Aaron was a big fan of 30-something. Wait, so, so how does Aaron come to you? Is, for, is it because of 30-something? Yeah, he, he liked what I was doing. He was starting to do Sports Night. He'd done a couple of movies. Uh, he wanted to do a series. He wanted to do this little show called Sports Night. And they approached me mm -hmm. and said, would you read the script? And I saw the documentary. I feel like I'm telling well, the story. Well, anyway, let's tell a different part of the story. Well, Aaron sent me a script. Mm -hmm. It was a really long script, so I thought it was an hour drama, and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was a half-hour TV show, and I met with Aaron, and he just liked what I did. And, and he would say to me, you know, I, this is frenetic, but I need it. You know, I need you to be frenetic so that it helps me because this place it's not, and that place it's not, and I need to. It was complicated because we had to do music and then write a theme for the show that appeared just when the show would start. So we'd have all this, we have a minute long scene where everybody's prepping to right, right. roll the show, and then right at the split second that the show starts, I would change the music and start the theme of the show. And what was the theme of the show? Uh, do you remember? I don't. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but yeah, you just put me on. The I'm spot. sorry. You, if you don't remember, it, it was all rock, guitar, and slide, and mm -hmm. you know, it's love and acoustic show. But you know, you have the, the the little slide over there, that little fuck off bar right there. We're you not can, gonna do that. We're not gonna do that. Play a little okay. slide. I want to do a lot. Of slide will kill me. I want to do a lot of things. Oh, okay. That's not gonna be one. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I tried to slap her. I need glass. So that won't work. Oh, you guys bear with us. I, I, I have a little yeah, shot glass. A little shot glass work. A beer bottle. It, that works. Well, I don't have any bottle. beer bottles. Right? <laughs> uh, water bottle. No. Sounds pretty good to me. No, it doesn't work. Uh, no. Anyway. I'm gonna make you so, get up and get a bottle. Go ahead. Um, where were we? Uh, so we were talking about Aaron. Oh, so Aaron just Aaron. Aaron's the great kind of. of person to work for. He just responds emotionally. He doesn't pick it apart. He doesn't say really? he doesn't say if it works and it moves him, then he's tickled and uh, and he's happy. I mean when he first heard the theme to uh, to the West Wing, he, he had a tear in his eye. That, that's one of my favorite things in the documentary when he was saying that uh, there were times when he didn't write a scene to get to the emotional core that he was looking for yeah. and that the actors hadn't hit the the, got the full bat on the ball. And that you would then come in and then you would deliver the fucking punch. So, uh, that's... But that's my job. That's my job. And, and I, I've been taught by the best. I mean... And, I and that scene that's in the documentary where Martin Sheen is giving the knives. Oh, oh my God. I'm bawling. I'm watching a two-minute scene and I'm crying. <laughs> it's, wow. And the music is just, like, ripping But it's very subtle. Out. But it's yeah. very subtle. Very subtle. The whole point was to be subtle. I never, I never understood anything about scoring. I, I mean, I, I never realized it was. There. I, I don't think that it's there. I don't pay. I don't know that it's there. Well, you're not supposed to. That's the whole point. We're supposed to suspend disbelief, and my job is to involve you more in the story and and make the story move forward. And if you're busy listening to me play a bunch of hot guitar licks, then you're not in the story. Right. So my job is is a, the total opposite. It's so you're being counterintuitive to what, as a rocker, as a guitarist, you would do. Oh yeah, it's the complete opposite. But here's, here's what it's like. Mm -hmm. I always played in bands. Mm -hmm. I was always kind of the color guy. I would play the solos or the, 
you know, the weird chords and all that cool color stuff. Right. Film is the band, and I'm just in the band playing just my part. So film is the dominant song. So the you're film one is of the, the characters song, in the band. And I'm just playing the color. Mm -hmm. And and that's the way I really look at it. Mm -hmm. is, is I'm supporting the film mm -hmm. at all times. Mm -hmm. And you know, and sometimes it works better than others. But so okay, so now how did the West Wing how did you get into orchestration? How did that happen? Well, Aaron was it told me about the West Wing, and he mm -hmm. said, I'm going to do the show, would you like to do it? And he, and he originally wanted a guitar score for mm -hmm. it. I said, yeah, man, because I love working with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, then they started putting John Williams, they do temp music where they put, you know, other do they, scores. Did they have John Williams write something specifically for no, it? No, they would take the John Williams score mm -hmm. and put it up against the scenes, and then they really liked it. So mm -hmm. Aaron came to me and said, listen, you know, this orchestral, I thought it was guitar, but this orchestral work, music's working great. How do you feel about, can you do that? And what'd you say, Snuffy? Yes. Yes, you said yes. <laughs> you, you figured it out later. You figured it out later. Uh -huh. because so how do you go about making that happen, having never done it before? I, that was, I had a couple of months. Mm -hmm. I did a quick study, really studied Aaron Copeland, really studied a friend of mine, James Horner, um, who was a good friend, mm -hmm. and I quizzed him, and, and listened to a lot of, of orchestral stuff and realized that like what like what did you do you remember I was listening anything to James like? Newton Howard scores mm -hmm. I was listening to a lot of James Horner can you point out a show that that uses an orchestral score that that people might identify oh that's what he means like lost lost okay lost used okay. Uh, use an orchestra okay uh, but an orchestral score is French horns as opposed to you know here you go in. French horn going. You know, it's it's a totally different thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you play the West Wing theme on a guitar, which I don't do very well, but it's and I will. Okay. Okay. I'll try. But okay. I, I don't. I don't play it ever. I played it for Mark I mean, yeah. in the documentary. Mm -hmm. But if you play it, it's really a simple little gospel melody. How did How did that melody? Do you remember how it came to you? Like. Happened in ten minutes. I wrote I wrote that theme because other people were writing songs for the main title. So songs. They oh, were people were writing songs. Lyrics. Randy Newman was writing a song no. for the main title of West Wing called "My House" or "Our House," and everybody was trying to get you know it was just like the thirty something. Everybody wanted a piece. Because Sorkin already had a, a rap out there. So oh yeah, they were already people who were already yeah, trying yeah. to get the main title. Yeah, yeah. And I had written. But Aaron wanted you to get it, didn't he? Because I don't know. Well, because he already had we that relationship with you. Yeah, yeah. We never discussed it. Mm -hmm. But what happened was, I wasn't even writing the main title. I was just trying to figure out what the hell I was doing with the scores. So you could have scored it and not had the main title. Yeah, exactly, okay. Exactly. Okay. Has that happened to you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So what happened was, I was writing the third episode. I had. I, we had limited budget, so I had to do three episodes in one session with the orchestra because we could only afford so much. So I would write a whole show, part of another show, and a couple of cues for the third show. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I did the first six episodes. Mm -hmm. And then we never did orchestra again. It was all me performing. But the third episode uh -huh. had a theme in it. They closed the episode when Aaron, when, uh, Aaron wrote for Martin to give his first...
uh, televised uh, speech, speech from, mm -hmm. from the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. And the theme was... It's like when things are effortless and they're in flow, yeah. it's right. And when things are arduous and challenging, get out, run. When you're thinking, stop. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm so, going to remember all that advice, by the way. Huh? I'm going to remember all that advice. <laughs> so, so that ends up winning you your Emmy Award. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And, um, and, and how long are you on the West Wing? Seven years. Seven years. Are you playing out in clubs while this is all no, going on? No, I quit. I quit playing. I quit playing when I started 37 Wonder Years. I didn't have time. I knew that if I didn't lock down and just focus on this, that it would go away faster than it was already going to go away. And this is already... How many years have you been doing this? 31 years. Yeah, no, it didn't go away so fast. It didn't go away so fast. But away. I've been... Blessed. And you've got something right now. What are you working on now? Working on a show called Seal Team. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, an action... Seal drum. So, like, what is that music like? <laughs> okay, and actually, one of my favorite things that you've done, I listened to the whole thing and, and blew my mind because I didn't particularly love the movie, but the stand is like, ah. oh my god. Yeah, I need a slide bar for that.
messing around. This is this is so uh, so so. How did you start playing again? What happened? You know, I. It all that's all happened because of Sarah. Sarah. Okay, so let's talk about Sarah. What, okay. what, 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 you how, know about Sarah. You you. Why don't you I, start that? Whole well, I know about Sarah because Sarah played in the living room with you, um, and I have to say that I did not know who she was because again, I really? don't know where, I, I don't know what rock I was under. She's got 73 million fans, so I don't know where I was, but I became a fan really fast. Because Pete George, my, my good friend Pete, um, told me about you guys. said, you gotta hear him. He sends me uh, a, a YouTube link. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's really good. I really like that, okay. You didn't listen. I didn't really, no, I was like, oh, I was, I was multitasking. I was doing like six, oh yeah, that sounds really good. Okay, let's book that. And he put me in touch with Mark, and we, we set it up, and I had barely listened to one track. And then, like the night before, I have to really pay attention, because now I'm going to write an introduction to you guys. And so the night before, I start listening, and I'm like, you know, it's seven hours later, I haven't stopped yeah. listening to <laughs> yeah. you and Sarah. I'm like, oh my God, what are you kidding me? But still, as much as I loved what you were doing on the videos, when you guys were here, and it was live, and Sarah was singing from her kishkis right. and ripping my guts. I mean, and, and I'm screaming, um, um, what? And it, right, Christina, you were here. She's amazing. And I'm saying this is this woman is is one of the five best singers I've ever heard. She's unbelievable. Well, the story that I met her when she was ten. I told Christina the story, but I met her when she was ten. She was singing on an episode of Providence, and she sang a Britney Spears song and a Madonna song. How, how did, okay. She was 10. She was playing I'm going to have Sarah on the show and she'll tell us the story. She was but. playing the role of one of those little girls that travels around little little girls' beauty contests and mm -hmm. was the entertainment. Mm -hmm. And she had won, you know, she would walk around in boots and on the stage. And uh -huh. So she had to come to my studio to pre-record it. I wasn't there because I had nine other shows going at the time. Oh, Jesus. It was 2002, maybe? Uh-huh. Something like that. And, uh, I had a bunch of other shows going. So I wasn't there for the recording session, but I came back mm -hmm. and she waited until I got back because she wanted to get a CD and get it signed. Aww. So I met her then when she was 10. Mm -hmm. And she was doing stuff on Broadway. She was doing lots of stuff. But I didn't pay any attention. And I really wasn't in a position. I was so busy. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't into yeah. helping anybody. And I just remember this little girl with this huge voice. Mm -hmm. Seven years later, I get a Christmas card from her. I'm doing Friday Night Lights. Mm -hmm. And she sends me a Christmas card. I saw your name on Friday Night Lights and I just wanted to reach out to you and say hi again. And Christina's going to move this because it's annoying her that it's in the shot. <laughs> Thank and you, Christina. It's, uh, and she sends me a Christmas carol of her singing at her high school Christmas program to a track, a big band version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And it just floored me. Wow. And she and I, that was a couple of weeks before Christmas, and she and I talked and text back and forth and send music back and forth for two weeks. And then she was going to do a gig sitting in at a pizza parlor down the road from my house. Mm -hmm. And I took Glenn Ballard with me, producer. And I said, I think this is a real deal. Mm -hmm. And we went and it was kind of a funny story. She was sitting there eating her chicken piccata and we were sitting there and they called her up and she takes a bite. <laughs> extra bite because they don't want to leave the food. And walks on stage and killed four songs and walked back while they're still applauding. Inside down eating. <laughs> so I, I made a decision then to help if I could. And she and I talked about it. I said, if you want a pop career and you want to do a pop record now, I'm not the right guy. I'm 
really not the right person for that. Mm -hmm. But if you want a well-versed education in music uh, and really have the time to find yourself and, and be an artist, I'll be there until I get you to the next level. Mm -hmm. And that's been nine years now. Never dreamed it'd be this long. But, what a blessing. But she's, it, 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 uh, I'm crying here. But, yeah. you know, I mean, I've been given so much that I... And, and it, be honest, it's been a blessing to me. Okay, the so way that, we got to this whole thing is... Right. It's one of the first things I said to her is, you know, you go in front of band. Well, I don't front of band. I did, she'd done a bunch of karaoke. She'd been on Broadway, but she'd never fronted a rock and roll. Oh, band. oh. Oh. No, she she sat in with people and uh -huh. that stuff, but she never had a band. I, I said, see. Okay, we're gonna put you in front of a band. So I hired, I didn't hire. I called my dear friends who were people from Texas and Cellar Days and oh wow, uh, played two guys that I played with since I was eighteen. Oh wow! So it's Sarah and her grandfather's basically. <laughs> she's like twenty six now. Uh, old oh, Fakakis. Yeah. The old Fakakis. Yes. So, I put this band together, and we started playing out. And so she had to really step up. Playing out in L.A. We used to play at a place called Cafe Cordial. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we did, you know, the, uh, what's the name of the place out there in Agora? Oh, I was just there not long ago. Yeah, the one yeah, in Agora. I should, I should um, Bogies? No. No, we played Bogies too. But yeah, no, not Bogies. We did some benefits yeah. with Kev Mo. We did a benefit with Kev Mo. Different mm -hmm. stuff, and she just had to step up because nobody gives a quarter. You know, we don't give a. If you're not gonna go for it, then excuse me, out of my way. Yeah. And she really learned how to do that. And then, after about three, three or four years of that, we we were working on her original material, mm -hmm. and that's where this duo kind of morphed from. Mm -hmm. And I started playing guitar because I was playing electric guitar with the other band. Mm -hmm. And then I started playing acoustic guitar with her, which I've never performed acoustic guitar ever, except I've been in the studio mm -hmm. writing scores doing it. Mm -hmm. So we started doing this acoustic thing, and it really it touched people. Mm -hmm. And it was easy, and it was it put a lot of weight on her, and yet, you know, she could really develop as an artist with it. And so, if we want to go, we can go to Europe and do it relatively inexpensively, and get her in front of a lot more people. Wow. And she's a phenomenal artist. And mm -hmm. And she's done the world for me because it got me back into playing. And I forgot how much I loved her because I quit for 25 years. 25 years? Wow. Do the math. Wow. Maybe it's I was not good at math. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. 13 plus. Yeah. So, it, and, you know, it's because of Sarah that I got back into playing. And what I found was is that I had been missing it so much. Mm -hmm. that, that was my first love. Mm -hmm. And now I'm performing more than I have in... 30 years and enjoying it more and do you miss the the rock and roll electric guitar jamming out i get enough of that mm -hmm. i get enough of that i get plenty of that with Babylon social club we have well a six we haven't piece, talked about that we have a six-piece rock and roll band mm -hmm. uh, Babylon social club that's sarah and her grandmothers you know mm -hmm. it's like everybody's at least 50s you know most 60s and Sarah was 26, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, you guys have anything coming up? Not right now. Not, our, our keyboard player had a nasty accident, mm -hmm. so we're kind of on hold for a moment. Mm -hmm. Hurt his hand. So, mm -hmm. um, 
Sarah and I really work. We go back. So yeah. So tell us what is coming up for you. We're you guys. Uh, I think we've got some gigs around here locally that we're about to book. We're going to be on the East Coast in January, and we're going to be in Europe in April, and you know, so we're traveling around, and we book dates. We play here at Hotel Cafe. And, mm -hmm. uh, well, well, when you guys are playing locally, my LA peoples, we be coming. Would you all come? We will all Please? come. We will all come. Hell yeah, we'll come. Um, so, so Snuffy, is there anything you've done a lot? Uh, you're looking at the time. Go so long. I know. This is what Please. we do. I know. We've been talking for two hours. Are you bored? Do we see? No. Them? Look, there's more people now. Than, look, look what they're doing to show you they're not bored. They're okay. shooting up the love. So we're gonna wrap though. But uh, is there anything that you've done so much? Is there anything that you haven't done that you aspire to still? Is there anything? Is there anything? Is there anything? Yeah. What? I'm gonna get better mm. and touch more people. Mm. Because that's really what I love about, that's why, you know, I think the biggest gift I get back is when I can turn someone's moment around. And, and it's not me, it's God. It, it's what, I get to be the vessel. But when it really, music can touch you that nothing else can. Right. And it doesn't have to have a language and it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be words. It can just be emotion. And that's what I strive for is to get purer with the emotion and less in my head and get better at that. But in that process, I want to be able to touch more people. So when you're tapping into that, when, when you're playing it, where do you go? How do you, how do you, how do you tap into that? What is that in you that's coming out? Are you think? Are, are you? You're not thinking. You're not thinking. It's the absence of thought. It's the absence of thought. The the point of playing, and you know, which I don't do as much as I should. I, I really should play Come more on every yourself. day. <laughs> I really should play more every day. But the point of doing that mm -hmm. is not to get fancy and learn how to do all these things. The point is to become at one with your instrument so you can be fluid with the expression that comes. Mm -hmm. And and that's totally different than having chops. Mm -hmm. it, the only reason you need the chops is so that you can go where your heart tells you. So you can facilitate the... So you can facilitate without thinking about it. Oh God, what are we key are we in? I, you know, I don't ever think that. Right. And sometimes I'm in the wrong key, but it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's coming from the place where music comes from, whatever you want to call it. Do you it. have to, is there something that, is there, do you prepare yourself to get into, do you pray, do you meditate, is there something, is there a preparation? I, I pray before every time I walk on stage, yeah. mm -hmm. But, uh, But if you're going to sit down to compose, like, do you, do you listen to music when you're no. not, not when you're composing, but I mean, do you listen to music in life? Not much. Not much. Interesting. Well, I have you know, when you work 14, 15 hours a day playing music. Mm -hmm. My brother used to come before he passed away. My brother used to come in toward the end. He was a brilliant musician. And toward the end, uh, he worked at a brick making factory. And he used to come into town and he'd always say, you know, he was an alcoholic too. And he'd always say, come on, let's jam. And I, you know, I've just come out of 16 hours, five days straight. And I go, God, Doug, no, he said, well, I don't come here very often. Come on, let's jam. I go, Doug, I don't ask you to make a brick when you come to my house. Oh. It was awful. I oh. wish I'd never said that oh. to him. Because he died a few years later. But 
the truth is I don't, uh, unless I'm trying to create something or learn something, you know, a lot of times there's things that Sarah wants to do that are out of my realm, mm -hmm. jazz-wise or something, and mm -hmm. I, I'll need to figure that out. Who do you love, who do you love to listen to? What music moves you? Anything that's got heart. Mm. And if it's a bunch of chops, it doesn't touch me, I, I turn it off. Mm -hmm. I really, you know, I, I don't listen to a lot of music, mm -hmm. but when I listen to some stuff, Hendrix, mm. give me an example. Clapton, I can visualize everything he's doing. I can see, as I'm hearing him play, mm -hmm. everything he's doing. Mm -hmm. Hendrix, another planet. Yeah. Can't, can't figure it out. I mean, just remarkable to me to this day mm -hmm. and he's been gone what 40 years mm -hmm. something like that maybe longer still to this day phenomenal to me and anyone who's coming from a soulful place where anyone who's reaching inside and exposing their inner self and you know you can't try to that's it with all art it's writing that's the, the writing that moves me it's the acting that moves me it's it's the music that moves me. So, so move me. So, so move us out of here and play some place out of here before you do that. So, we'll see you next week with George Shapiro, um, who is the, um, the brains and the man behind Jerry Seinfeld and Paul Reiner. And, and, um, and coming up is Norman Lear and uh, Theo Pangolis and all kinds of Fred Malamud. And we have amazing people coming up on Game Changers. Thanksgiving out there, everybody, and Snuffy, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week. Happy Thanksgiving.